You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Berkshire Hathaway Investment Company is having their annual meeting. It's a big one because it's their 50th anniversary. If you're not familiar with who they are, they're an investment company headed by the famed Warren Buffett and his partner Charlie Munger, and uh, they're valued at $353 billion in assets. Uh, Warren's personal assets are estimated to be around $39 billion, with a B, billion dollars. Now, one of the reasons this is a big deal, besides being a 50th anniversary, is because um, uh, Warren is 84 and Charlie's 91, and so the big question is who's taking over the helm uh, when these guys go, and not simply because they're going to retire, because if they were going to retire, they would have done it a lot sooner than 84 and 91, um, but because at some point they're going to die, and then who is going to be in charge of that $353 billion, because Warren and Charlie, we all know, can't take it with them. They have to leave it behind. Now, like many of you, I have an investment fund, a retirement account that I invest into. However, um, this may not surprise you, and mine is not quite at $39 billion, okay? Um, in fact, I did some rough calculations, and I could probably be there in about 487 years, okay, at my present rate of growth. Um, so we're making some changes in our retirement plans because of that. Um, I do have an account. I can give money, and what's cool about it, it's pre-tax dollars, so I can take money to my account out of my paycheck, pre-tax. But what's even really cooler is that my employer get, puts money every month into that account. Um, it's not money I've earned. It's just out of their generosity they put money into my retirement account basically as a reward for being a faithful employee. Here you go, we're putting some in every month for you. Whether or not I put any in, they put some in on my behalf. And that's, that's great, that's why it's growing, okay? We're going to talk today about a little bit different kind of investment. A little bit different way of viewing both financial investment, but actually even eternal investment. Will you stand with me as we read from God's Word? We're continuing with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're continuing in chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 19 through 24, and we'll go from there. Hear the word of the Lord for us today, the words of Jesus to us. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Christ to us. We thank you, Lord, for the many, many blessings you give us, including material possessions. But we acknowledge, Lord, that as we look at this word today, we, will, we are aware of our propensity, our, our, indi- our desire for things over you. And I just pray that you give us understanding. Each of us, uh, in our own way, in our own unique context and life situation, may we take to heart the gospel and your work in our lives. We thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Sermon on the Mount, it goes for three chapters, Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7 in our Bibles. And we're only in the middle, we're about halfway through, in the middle of chapter 6. But already so far, we have seen some, uh, we have, there's a word that's been repeated nine times. And we've kind of gone by it, but I decided that we need to pause a little bit because of the context of our, te- our text today to actually take a look at that word. The word is reward. The word is reward. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because for your reward is great in heaven. A little later he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In the beginning of chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people, before other people, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he continues in, that, in the whole, that whole warning there. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet and make a big to-do about it so that everybody pays attention. If you do, you will receive the reward of people paying attention to you. And then he goes on and says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving be done in secret. Why? Why should we let our giving be done in secret? Jesus says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then a little later, he talks about praying. He says, don't pray so that everybody sees you. Don't make a big deal and get everybody's attention. And if you do that, if you pray so that everybody sees you, he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward, getting attention. But, he goes on, when you pray, go in the room, shut the door, and pray to your father in secret. And when your, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in verse, uh, in our, um, a little later on fasting, we talked about this last week, in fasting, he says, when you fast, do not get gloomy like the hypocrites, you know, don't disfigure your faces so that everybody will see what you're doing because then you have received your reward. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, don't let anybody know you're doing it, and when you, and you fast in secret, your Father who sees what is in secret will reward you. So nine times... Jesus is saying part of the motivation, part of the understanding of our doing whatever Jesus is we're doing is the idea of motivation. Either motivation here on earth or motivation in heaven. I mean, excuse me, reward on earth or reward in heaven. Rewards? Rewards. What, What does he mean by reward? Well, the word simply means to give back. It means to make a return. This simple meaning of the word. It's used in the Bible in a number of different ways of, in, in places of money. Money is given back, reward. Uh, justice. Justice is given back. It's a reward. Uh, it's also used in more of God's gracious response to our act of 
faith and prayer. So in that way, God gives back his blessing as a reward. It's, it's important. It's not a wage that we earn. It's something that somebody gives to us that's pointed our way because of some things we do. We do something, and then, this is the reward, there's a consequence from someone, someone else, directed towards us. That's the reward. For example, Jesus has already repeated the an example. He repeats it. If you do things to get other people's attention so they give you applaud and recognition, that applaud and recognition is your reward. You get it. But if you do things, the right things, in secret because they're the right things to do, and other people don't applaud you and don't give you recognition, oh, your father knows you're doing them. And you will get a reward. It just won't be right here, right now. So that's easy for us to understand the difference in that. Um, well, what do these rewards look like? What, what is he talking about? Well, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, let's just stay primarily with the Sermon on the Mount, I think he tells us three ways, three dynamics that we get rewards by what Jesus has already taught us. In the context, he's bringing this up, so that's just, what is he saying here? Well, the first one um, is that, um, and, and just previous to this, he said about prayer and fasting, they go together. When we do prayer and fasting and, and, they, and, and we do them, um, it says that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, what do, you th- what do we think that he means by that? Well, probably what he really means by that is that our reward is we'll get what we pray for. God will bless that prayer. He will honor that fasting. And we will, the reward is we'll get what we pray for. But, and Jesus told us what to pray for in the text. And we know it as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glory be to your name. We pray sincerely that God's name will be glory. That's the reward. His name will be glory. Glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, now as it is in heaven. If we pray that sincerely and we're pursuing that, God will honor that. His will will be done right now. That's the reward. And we can give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not to temptation. We pray those things that he told us to pray for. The reward is, I'll answer that. You'll get that. Because it's by my will. And that one way God is giving back to us is rewarding us for praying a specific way. I think there's a second way Jesus has indicated in the Sermon on the Mount. He said earlier, we've, it's been a, couple, a while since we looked at them, but the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, blessed are you, Remember, there's a whole bunch of them. Blessed are you. And he specifically ties it to the last one of those blessings. He goes, blessed are you and you are persecuted for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So he's tying this idea, these blessings are, part of the, are tied to these rewards. And he says, the Beatitudes are blessings, are rewards, are consequences for character qualities of living in the kingdom a certain way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who meet, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the hunger and, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Those are all blessings. Those are all rewards. If you These character qualities, we summarize that way, are true for you. You will be blessed with, and he, and he names the blessing. You're merciful, you get more mercy. For example. There's something here, though, in the wording of those we should pay attention to. 
blessed and, and, um, and you, they shall. The wording of those is present tense and future tense. You are blessed now because something's going to happen in the future. We call it theologically, biblically, we call it the already, not yet. It's not a biblical term. It's just a way pastors and theologians summarize the concept. One is, things are already true, but they're not yet complete or full. So Jesus is saying these blessings of the Sermon on the Mount, they're already true for you, but they're not done yet. There's more to come. So it's come your way. It's the already, not yet. You already have this, but they're not full yet. They're not, the, the mercy you're going to get is even more than you get right now, for example. Okay, well that's, that's pretty straightforward. The third one is a little less obvious. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And then he goes on and says that beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Uh, then you will receive no reward. This is the warning. You receive no reward from your Father. And then he describes the Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on in our text today, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. He's making a direct contrast. You can do stuff on earth, lay up your treasures here, or you can lay them up in heaven. What, what's he talking about? What, what's, what does he mean in heaven? Well, to help explain this, we need to step back. And get a big picture which conveniently appeared on this this morning. Okay, everybody just snap a picture of this and we can go home. That just explains everything, okay? Let's walk through this. And I'm pausing now because we, quickly, we have misconceptions about heaven and the whole thing, and I can't cover everything today, but I want to walk through this. This is what we know here at Red Sea is the story of God. That of, of the whole history of man, we call it the story of God. The main character, if you will, the, main, the protagonist is not us, it's God. And he created the world. Genesis 1 and 2. We know he created it, and he created it good. It's the way he designed it. He had a purpose for it. And when he created it, he created people, possessions, pleasures, and power. Simple. It doesn't say everything. It's just a summary of what God created. When he created, he put things there. The description of Genesis 1 and 2 is about people, possessions, things. It's tangible. It's real. Pleasure. They were naked and unashamed. They had walked with God. And power. You have dominion over this creation. He created it. Then we know the fall. Adam and Eve chose to do it their way instead of God's way. And sin entered the world and has plagued us ever since. Again, not news for us right here. Red Sea. And, and, and there's, this, is a, this is out of very disproportionate in its timeline. But there, God did a lot of things, and he called, he's, at one point he called Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm selecting you, one guy, and the whole world's going to be blessed because of you. And then we go on in the story and we get the nation of Israel. And he calls them to be a people, and he works with them. And we, that's, most of their Old Testament is about those people of Israel that we know as the Jews. And all through those stories, we talked about it a couple years ago, there's blessings and curses, blessings and curses. 
All through there. You, you do this, you live this way, you worship me only. There's his blessings. You don't. Here are the consequences. There are curses. Old Testament is primarily that. That's why we need to know it. And you know, and since the sin entered the world, what do we struggle with in our sin? I'll summarize it. We struggle with people, possessions, pleasure, and power. Isn't that right? Aren't those the things that plague us? That is the point of contention with sin. Those are the things that master us instead of us mastering them as God intended. The story continues. This is Jesus. You guys knew that was Jesus, didn't you? Huh? Huh? Who said he had a beard? Oh, you saw a picture. That white Anglo-Saxon guy? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Okay, we got to take away the kids' books. Okay, anyways. Don't get... Okay. This is... When he was born, Jesus didn't have a beard, okay? <laughs> Jesus comes down. He is part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Somehow, God becomes man. I say somehow. We know that it's true. We just don't, can't figure out all the nuances of how. But he does, and he walks, and he lives a life. And that life ends with his death on the cross, but that's not it. Then it's his resurrection from the dead. And, and Christ dies. And rest. The, the, the center, it's not all of the Gospel. This is all the Gospel. But the Gospel message obviously centers here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that I, I, I delivered over to you was of first importance. That Christ uh, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. All this. And He rose again from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And He's coming again. Well, Jesus isn't here. We talked about this Easter Sunday. Jesus left. His body, he rose from the graves. Well, where's his body? Why isn't he walking around? He ascended. That's Jesus in his glorified body. And we know of the ascension and exaltation. Jesus is with the Father, and the Father has exalted it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given over to Jesus. He's not only the risen Jesus, he is our Savior, but he's also our Lord and King. And he's the world's Lord and King. The question is whether they recognize him or that or not. That's the choice. This is the dove. That's a dove. Okay? Yeah, pretty good, huh? After the third attempt, that's the dove. And he came down as the third person of the Trinity. came down, the Holy Spirit, excuse me, it's not the dove, it's the Holy Spirit came down um, and to be it. We, we talked about this recently, that um, Jesus continued. Um, the Holy Spirit in us is better than Jesus beside us. Well, things changed when Jesus rose from the dead. The kingdom came. It's already here. The gospel's already preached. Forgiveness is already secured. All those sins are already paid for. The already is here. The world, though, and many of it just continues on, continues on. But we also know something. We are someplace in this, in this already zone. But we know also that the Scripture talks about this risen Lord, the King, Jesus, will return to earth physically in His glorified state. We call this the second coming. Okay, it's The second coming of Christ. He came once. He's coming. The same guy is coming again. I was reading recently that the second coming of Christ is, meant, is referenced 318 times in the New Testament. According to that author, that means that one out of every 13 verses refer to Jesus' second coming. One out of every 13. Kind of important. Kind of important 
when that theme runs so strongly throughout the New Testament. We live because He's coming again. Well, when He comes again, things change. And one of the things that's going to happen, we're told does happen, is, and this is part of the not yet, hasn't happened yet, he hasn't come back, is that there is, this is a throne. That the king will judge the living and the dead. Jesus will judge the living and the dead. There will be judgment, and we're told there's rewards. This is one of the reasons why all this history of scriptures of blessings and curses, all that stuff in the New Testament gets confusing because it foreshadows the ultimate blessings and curses that are yet to come. And, and, and when it comes, Jesus will judge. The, the, they'll bring judgment and reward. And then he will bring in the new heavens, and we often forget this, the new earth. We're not flying around clouds with wings and all that kind of mumbo-jumbo. We're going to be on earth. It'll be a new earth, but it'll be physical. It'll be different. We don't know how different. We're just told that it is different. And guess what's going to be there? People, possessions, pleasure, and power. We will rule. We will have dominion. The same stuff here will happen here just in a glorified way and to go on for eternity. This is the story of God. This is the Gospel. This is what the Gospel is. It centers on the death and resurrection of Christ. But it also, though, anticipates and is, is the whole story of coming through. Now, why are you going through all that, Royce? Well, first of all, remembering that's good for all of us. But when it comes to the judgment, we know that there are going to be two. The exact order, how, all the nuances, we don't know. We just know that they are. We know that there's going to be a judgment between believers and non-believers. Those who believe in Christ and those who don't will be separated. Okay? The, the, the believers in Christ will be in new heavens and new earth, and those who don't, won't. For eternity. But what's also indicated in Scripture is that there will be a judgment of believers. As believers, we will stand before the throne of God and give an account for our lives. This is not, let's be clear, it's not based on our sin. It's not a condemnation of our sin. We probably want to get up there and, and, and have, he's going to go through your life and, oh, you blew it here, you blew it here. No, no, that's paid for, that's done. But there will be another sense of judgment. He's going to look at our lives and say, hey, I got rewards. Who gets the well done, good and faithful servant? And we know that that's coming. And then there's the new heavens and the new earth. That's the story of God. We're talking, when Jesus says in this text, you, then your reward will be great in heaven, he's talking about this. He's anticipating that. Judgment, rewards for believers? Really? Jesus even said in this text in Matthew 6, he said, uh, when you're, um, if you're given for people's applause, then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So if we do it to get reward for people, we get it. But we forego the reward here. So there must be. Other texts, in Matthew 25, for example, later in Matthew, as we preach through Matthew, Jesus is going to talk, Jesus is anticipating, knows, and is going to talk a lot about his second coming. And he tells stories, parables, to give you a truth. Hey, I want you guys to be ready. 
And he, and, he, and he wants them to do things. And one of the parable of the talents, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, and they, they're given a responsibility. I'm a king, I'm going to leave and give you responsibilities, and I'm going to come back and hold you accountable. Hey, how'd you, how'd you do? And this, is what, and this is what some of them heard. And his master said to him, and the, the servant came back and said, See, master, you gave me this, I, I, I did more with it. And he says, the master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, for you have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's a reward. In, in Matthew 25, and continuing that same chapter, our, in our Bibles, Jesus is continuing, is talking about the coming, and he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit in his glorious throne and before them, and they will, he will set, gather the nations, and he will separate them from sheep and goats. I want you to hear what his criteria is for separating. His, his criteria for separating them is not focused on the cross. It's focused on how they live their lives. He says, he says, and he said, put, he said, put him on one side and he says, and the king will say to them, um, those on his right, come, be blessed by your father, inherit the kingdom of heaven, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you, you gave me a drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And, and the racist will answer him, saying, Lord, what, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, and thirsty, and give you a drink? And when were you a stranger, and we welcomed you, or naked, when we clothed you? And when were you sick, and in prison, we visited you? And the king said to them, Truly, I say to you, when you did this to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he tells the second half of this parable to the other people and said, you didn't do any of these things. Well, when didn't we do all those things? When you didn't do them to other people. The point is the criteria is that of separating them is between how they live their lives. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this too, that Christians are going to be judged. He says, we have to have good courage and when we're away from the Lord in our bodies... We, we long to be with the Lord, and we have courage. Um, so, and, and we know that the Lord's going to come. So whether we are at home, meaning in our physical bodies, or away in heaven, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please Jesus. Why? Why, Paul? Why would we make, give our life dedicated to please Jesus? He goes on, verse 10. For we, Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about this too. He talks about how we are all by the grace of God uh, called to, to Christ, and he uses this analogy that he's a builder, that Christ is our foundation, and we build on that foundation. We can't lay any other foundation. The gospel that Christ died for our sins is the foundation. But how we live our lives, we're like builders on that foundation. And he, he says, and, and if one builds on the foundation, you've got to be careful, he says. Now, if one builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, obviously a contrast there, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day... And Christ returns, will disclose the work of our lives. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. 
if the, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Jesus is saying when this judgment comes, using the visual representation, there will be a fire. And our lives will be torched. And then God, I think, is just going to go, that's him blowing away the ash. And what's left of our life is going to be either precious, gold, silver, costly stones, because the wood, hay, and stubble are gone. And each one will get what is due him, his reward. Not due him, his reward. But some won't have that much. Though they'll be in heaven, they'll be saved. That's not the issue. The issue is there won't be much reward for them in heaven. That's what Paul's saying, clearly. Judgments, rewards, treasures. What's the point? Well, the point is this. This is the point Jesus is trying to make. Our present day actions, how we live our lives, have eternal consequences. How we live our lives now has eternal consequences in two ways. The first way is, and I'm talking, a believer in Christ, one who has faith in Christ, has repented and responded to Christ's call of the gospel. His actions, his deeds, the way we live our lives will provide public evidence to indicate that our faith in Christ is genuine. It's not going to be, hey, I told you I believed you. We're going to be able to, Jesus says, we'll be able to see that you believed by your life demonstrating that you did believe. That's what you'll be judged on. Our deeds, it's important, our deeds, our actions, our life are not the basis of our salvation. But they are a demonstration of our salvation. We, we talk about this a lot. We haven't emphasized it quite so strongly, maybe. But we talk about this a lot. It seems like a couple times a month I'm quoting Ephesians 2. I think it's a great passage, 1 through 10. It's a summary of the gospel. Ephesians 8 and 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or live in them. Part of the gospel message is we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for doing good works. And doing those good works is a demonstration of our faith in Christ. Paul talks about it in Titus. He says, For by grace you have, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, regardless of race, sex, age, nationality, doesn't make a difference. All people have access to this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How we live matters. Why? Why, Paul? Verse 13, waiting for the bless, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know this is going to happen. That's why we live differently now, he's saying. And then he goes on, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealousness, zeal, um, 
excitement, commitment to doing the right things is a demonstration that we believe the gospel and the gospel has gripped us. That's what Paul's saying. We over and over again here at Red Sea talk about the gospel, that in Christ we are accepted, secure, and significant. We don't get, we don't, we don't earn it, we, don't, we can't do it from other people. We are accepted in Christ, we can't be more or less. We are secure, we can't be more or less. We are significant in Christ, and that we can't be more or less. That's true. But, these are gospel truths that should change, because they are true, should change the way we live. Because we are accepted, secure, and significant, we live differently than those around us. What motivates us is different. What, what, what we value is different. The actions we do, what we give our time to and our energy and our money to, changes. Paul says that we... Um, Paul said to Peter and told us in Galatians 2 that we need to live in step with the truth of the Gospel. The truth of the Gospel is we're accepted, secure, and significant in Christ. Now we need to let, live in such a way that demonstrate that. That's called faithfulness. And our present-day actions have eternal consequences. Secondly, they will, they will, uh, secondly, a believer's deeds, actions, how we live our lives now, will provide public evidence to indicate the measure of rewards that we will receive from Christ. How we live now will be a demonstration of the measure of rewards we will receive from Christ. We've seen this in a number of different places, and there are numerous scriptures that indicate this. I'm not going to go through a lot of them. The scriptures, and, and, and also notice, we've already talked about some of that, but also notice that there are degrees, it, appear, it appears, there are degrees of rewards. There's more or less rewards. It's not equal for everybody for all time. He said, I said, um, Paul said, if, if the work, they live your life, you're building a foundation, if they work in that foundation receives, he will receive a reward. But if the one who, uh, but the other persons might be burned up, he will suffer loss. Not a salvation, but loss. Thus, some will get a lot, some won't. The master in the parable said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Not every servant hears those words. Over much. There'll be more for you. Jesus said in our text, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The implication is you can either lay up a lot or you can lay up a little. The amount you're laying up is up to us, Jesus is indicating. There are degrees. Now, that being said, we need to be clear on something. Even though there will be degrees, or appear to be degrees of rewards in heaven, the joy, the peace, the glory that each person will experience will be full and complete for eternity. Okay? Well, isn't that a contradiction, Royce? I, 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 it is? You think so? Okay. Jordan thinks it's a contradiction. How many of you think that's a contradiction? Sounds like it? It sounds like it. Like, okay, some will have more, some will have less, but I'm saying... We will all be filled with joy and pleasure and, and glory and those things for eternity. How can it be both? 
This is me. This is somebody else. Those are containers. I will be filled, and so will they. We'll be full. We can't put any more joy and glory in us for eternity. But one sure can have a whole lot more than the other. Now, am I going to be really upset and disgruntled with that person or, or the Lord for eternity because I didn't get more? No. Oh, all the things we think about happiness and joy, and that's, that's back here. That's, that's, that's competing with each other. If I'm filled with joy, I'm filled with joy. The fact that this person has greater capacity and greater rewards, I'm not going to be jealous about because there's no jealousy. And we know from other descriptions in Revelation and other sects that there will be more. There'll be closer places to the throne. There's all those kind of things. And Jesus is saying you can lay up for yourselves a lot more treasures. This experience, though both are full, is, is not the same. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Not convincingly. Okay, well, we'll deal with it. Okay. Now to our text for today. That was all introduction, by the way. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no. What are we going to do? I'm going to move very quickly through this because I don't think it needs a whole lot of explanation. I think Jesus is pretty clear. We try to explain it a lot because we wrestle with it, but his point in the next three sections are very clear. One, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He's saying we have a choice. Now, you can lay up treasures on earth, things, money, possessions, pleasure, things, all those kind of things. We can do that now, invest in those things. And he's saying those are foolish. They deteriorate. They go away. People steal them. Everything. Even our reputations. All those things can be destroyed. All the things we strive for, all the things we strive for now in this earthly way can be gone. We lose it even while we're here. That's how foolish it is. And then he says, but you can store up for treasures in heaven. And he's saying this is a wise investment. Why? Because it doesn't deteriorate. It doesn't go away. Nobody can steal it. It's for eternity. That sounds like a wise investment. You have a choice. Well, how do we invest in order to store up treasures in heaven? How do we invest to store up treasures in heaven? Well, Jesus has been telling us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, do we live with his kingdom values? Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, joyful, joyful when we receive persecution? When we do, we're laying up treasures. When we don't, we won't. Are we functioning as salt of the earth and light of the world, as he said after that? Or are we too preoccupied with pursuing earthly treasures to be salt and light in the world. Our, how we deal with anger, how we deal with lust, how we deal with our marriages, 
how we deal with our commitments and our oaths matter. He said, how do we respond when people hurt us? How do we respond when people hurt us? Do we retaliate? If we do, the satisfaction of retaliation is our reward. But if we choose instead to love and give generously to our enemies, we are storing up rewards in heaven. Are we given to the needy frequently and generously? This is where it comes head to head. Are we hanging on to our money and not giving it to the needy? Well, you hang on to it, you get to keep it. That's your earthly treasure. You give it away to those in more need, you're investing in the heavenly treasure. When we pray, do we focus on our wants, our desires, our comfort, or is it on the zeal for God's glory, his kingdom, and his will being done in our lives? Are we willing to fast good things? We talked about this last week. Are we willing to fast good things that are distracting us from God's things? If we're willing to give them up and fast them, part of that is reward treasures in heaven. Now understand, Jesus is not, in the Sermon on the Mount, is not describing these as options or an alternative lifestyle for us to consider. As the king with all authority in heaven and in earth, he is instructing us on his expectations and how we will be eventually judged and rewarded. That's what he said over and over again. Jim Elliott was a missionary who uh, was a martyr, died famously, and he, um, he famously, uh, quotes, uh, his, fam- his quote is famous, and it's this. He is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He, because people said, why are you going off to South America being a missionary and giving everything up? He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, our life now, to gain what I cannot lose. The world thinks it's foolish. Jesus goes on and says, the eye is a lamp to the body. So if your body is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The analogy is easy for us to grasp. doesn't need a lot of explanation. Light we see clearly in the light. We we get proper perspective of distance and, and association and connections in the light. In the dark, we don't. That's what Jesus is saying. And what is he saying? What's he referring to? Well, live in the light. Have, have a, a perspective, a view of reality. Live in light. And basically he's saying there's an earthly perspective and there's an eternal perspective. If you're living in the light, you see the eternal perspective. We, we, we know this. We know as we try to live our lives, but we sometimes try to do so in darkness. It's like building a house in daylight versus building a house in the in dead of night. It's like running a marathon with, with um, a well-marked trail in the middle of daylight or running a marathon with blindfolded and with no course map. That's the analogy Jesus said. What we can do in the light is a whole lot easier and a lot better than in the darkness. It doesn't take a whole lot to figure that out. And what Jesus is saying in the context of these verses is saying this sermon, these messages, these things we know as the Sermon on the Mount is that light. That's what you see by we would expand it to say, see this story of God? That's light to live by. 
If we have that perspective, we will see clearly. If we don't, then we won't. And he gives a warning there at the end. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think he's trying to say, basically, that darkness has eternal consequences. It's not a little thing. And then he goes on. A third thing he says. And again, doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. No one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one or hate Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He again gives us a choice. Here, now. All of us have this choice to make. Money, this is a, is a poor translation. It should be material possessions. Anything that's things. Things that we derive pleasure from that we could own and stuff like that. Notice he's contrasting masters here. It's not employers. Okay, We say, well, I've had two jobs before. I could do that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about masters, people we are devoted to, people we are loyal to. The issue here is loyalty to the one who is your king, your master. You can't have two, even earthly, because you either, you're going to pick. You have to pick between the two of them. That's what he's saying. They all understood that. And he's saying you can't have serve God now and money now. You just can't do it. It's similar to the, for where your treasure is, there your heart be also. One of the ironies of this is we think we own our possessions. And in reality, they own us. They are the masters. He's calling your things, possessions, your master. Or God. Pick one. We cannot serve God and money. In uh, in the movie, Sweet Home Alabama. Yes, I watch chick, watch chick flicks. Uh, Monica and I collect lines out of movies. They mean something to us. And I got one out of Sweet Home Alabama. The character played by Reese Witherspoon is in a dilemma. Classic. Dilemma never occurred again in another chick flick. She doesn't know which man to marry. And her father gives her wise advice. He says to her, you can't ride two horses with one ass, sweet pea. I, I think Jesus would agree with him. He might not have said it that way. You can't ride two horses at the same time. You've got to pick one. And that's what Jesus is saying. As we live in the kingdom values of the Sermon on the Mount, and we know where this is all going, you've got to pick the horse and ride that horse. We, um, as I mentioned, the coming of Christ is 318 times, supposedly, is referenced in the New Testament. That's all, it is all over the place. And one of those places that I was talking to Josh about this this week is in Hebrews. And, and he says, and the author of Hebrews goes on, he says in chapter 10, and let us consider how we may stir one another to love and good works. That's, as a church, that's, how can we encourage each other to live that way? But not neglecting, meet to, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. His concern is we're together, doing this together but encouraging one another. And all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. We gather here every week for a number of reasons as a response to God's generosity to us in Christ. We celebrate that He died. He came and He died. But we also are celebrating part of the Gospel that He's coming again. And the Lord gave us a reminder in His wisdom. He gave us a reminder of the Lord's Supper to remind us of that. It is that His... his even though Jesus specifically mentioned His death, life, death in, his, in the Lord's Supper, but it also implies all these other things as well. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating being together in Christ but we're also celebrating our anticipation of the return of Christ. As you are, if you have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, I invite you to come in a few minutes to take communion as a means of celebrating, and think about this when you're there, that he not only died for you and rose again from the dead, but he's coming again. And we celebrate that every week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Christ, for His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation, and Lord, in anticipation of His coming again. I pray, Lord, that we, as we um, think about, and Your Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our minds this week, about the idea of a coming judgment and rewards, that we would not be fearful but we would anticipate, anticipate with joy, being filled with the joy and the glory and the peace and and in your presence. We thank you for this, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.